Hi everyone, welcome back to another podcast. I'm your host, Max Shannon. Today I'm delighted to be joined by Callum Thomas. Callum is the Head of Research at Top Down Charts, focusing on global economics and asset allocation, with over 15,500 followers on LinkedIn. Previously, Callum has had research and strategy roles at firms such as AMP Capital and AXA. And finally, Callum has a Bachelor's in Business Studies and two Masters in Management and another in Finance. Callum, thank you so much for joining me today. Can I kick off the first question with um, to do with macroeconomics? What are your thoughts on inflation, uh, transitory, stagflation or deflation over a one, three, five year time horizon? Um, yeah, very good question. So I think um, if we look back to last year, the word that everyone was using, um, like, uh, probably just at the, at the height of the panic was the, um, the idea of unprecedented. And it really is unprecedented. And I think we've, um, you know, I think we overused the word back then and we've kind of forgotten that it is still extremely unprecedented because we've had, I think, basically a supply shock as well as a demand shock. And in terms of the supply shock, it's come at a time where never before in history has the global supply chain been so interconnected and so interdependent and um, reliant on each other and you know, if you wanted to come up with the perfect recipe to disrupt the whole thing and throw it into disarray, it's basically exactly what happened last year and what is still happening, um, you know, with the, the initial phase was, you know, everything shut down, then it got turned back on. And then you had this sort of rolling um, lockdowns, rolling disruptions, and you've still got that carrying on um, kind of a second wave, obviously, with Delta. Um, and, and so I think that has that's the supply side of things, and we can see still the indicators that I look at backlogs. Um, they're still at record highs, like just nothing like we've ever seen before, um, and that's a real issue. But you know, I, I think it's also important to say that um, it's not just about the supply side because we have basically had a demand shock as well. You. Um, you had that initial bounce back from turning the economy off, turning it back on. But then this, the, the amount of monetary fiscal stimulus that was thrown at the, um, the thing, and I think rightfully so, to try and um, prevent, because you know, the, initially there was this, you know, oh, it's going to be a Great Depression and um, there's going to be a recession like we've never seen before. And it probably would have been right if um, policymakers didn't step in, um, put apply those um, fiscal um, economic life support measures, um, apply the, the stimulus to, to put a floor under things. And um, yeah, as, as you might expect, when you give people money, they spend it. And, and also just the drastic change of behavior that have, has been forced on people, um, you know, causing a spike in demand for certain things. Um, but, it, it, uh, but, it, but also I think, um, just worth sort of dwelling for a second on the housing market too, because with uh, interest rates at record lows and, you know, when people were locked down, shut in, they didn't spend money. So they built out extra money for deposit. Um, housing markets have gone crazy the world over. And um, of course that increases demand for all manner of items related to housing um, and construction. And so, it's this perfect storm of a demand shock and a supply shock. Um, so clearly that's short-term, very extremely inflationary. Um, as to what happens next, so the, um, so the, yeah, 
clearly we can see we've had the spike in inflation, the year-over-year rate of change. So headline CPI inflation has clearly gone up because it had a low base imperative. That's going to mathematically roll over. Um, and so it's going to look like inflation, headline inflation is going down um, probably over the next six months. Um, and I think that'll probably fool a lot of people into thinking that, you know, oh, inflation's over. Um, now is where I kind of get into an argument with myself because on the one hand, if you think about the short-term inflationary pressures, they could actually be deflationary in a way because if, um, if costs rise too much, then that can actually discourage demand. But I think what I'm probably more focused on medium term is just capacity utilization. So um, there was clearly a massive output gap when you turned the global economy off, but now that we've turned it back on, um, capacity is as tight as ever. And um, that is the key to seeing what happens next. Um, and also with regards to wage inflation. So we're both tied up. So capacity utilization, we're talking about um, unemployment rates going back down to pre-crisis levels where um, factories as busy as ever. And um, yeah, that sort of drives some more underlying core inflation. And so kind of what I could see happening you know, unless something else throws it off, which has a ha habit of tending to happen. Um, you'd, you'd see headline inflation roll over, everybody starts saying, oh, yeah, inflation's not a problem anymore. And then that core inflation comes through and they're like, oh, actually, that is, it's here for real now. Mm. Um, okay. Yeah. Awesome. Well, um, how do you think the opening of economies has affected real learnings? But also, do you think the Delta variant is a is a threat? I yeah, I'm not being an expert on vaccines. Um, I think that we we kind of have to wait and see. Um, Asia is probably the kind of like the the test case for that. You know, if I look at I, I kind of grouped countries into buckets, so developed versus emerging and within emerging Asia versus non-Asia. So non-Asia emerging markets, that actually, their case counts have actually been, you know, reducing, which is kind of helped the investment case for emerging markets ex-Asia. But Asia has um, seen, you know, so we're talking Philippines, um, Thailand, Malaysia, etc. They'd seen cases um, just skyrocketing. Um, and that was basically down the Delta um, and so it's kind of a test case there to see whether kind of they can get it under control, what happens next there. Um, it's a test case, but it's also a pretty critical issue because, again, as I mentioned, that, that you know, being a very important part of the global supply chain, that's just, you know, re-inflamed to that issue. So I think in terms of real earnings, so um, clearly um, with, you know, if we look at the data, um, US earnings have bounced back um, and then some. So, you know, completely, um, which, you know, fits with that story that we talked about before, you know, um, turning it back on and adding a whole bunch of stimulus. So, um, I mean, earnings are going pretty good. Um, you know, they're, they're back probably about this time last year, no earlier than last year, um, you know, March, April, I was talking about, you know, there's a clear and compelling value case there because equities looked very cheap. And um, 
you know, I got a lot of abuse and pushback on social media saying, you know, yeah, but what about earnings? And um, yeah, this is where earnings have wound up. Mm, okay. So, As we've entered this new paradigm into new record debt levels, how does this affect valuations and growth expectations? Yeah, with, with regards to the debt levels, one thing is, um, well, there's quite a few different things we could talk about here. Um, so one is that the idea that because we've got so much debt, um, central banks will never be able to raise interest rates. Um, I think that that's quite a flawed argument because clearly, um, you know, growth matters, um, revenue matters. If, um, if nominal earnings are booming, no, 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 nominal earnings because um, that's what you use to pay your debt. Um, and it also captures the aspect that, you know, the boost in earnings is probably partly going to be due to the um, higher prices. Then, um, you know, I don't see it as a barrier at all. And I see that, you know, it's inevitable that policy stimulus gets removed. Um, it's, you know, and I think that that's something that we do need to dwell in for a second because there probably has been a large group of people that have been lulled into the sense that the Fed is going to be, you know, stimulating forever, that the Fed's got our back. Um, the Fed doesn't, is not necessarily on your side. Um, it might be at certain times, um, but, you know, their mandate is to try and smooth out the, um, the cycle. So, that means um, stimulus at the bottom, removing it through as you go along and then ultimately tightening. So, you know, there's one theme that I've been um, keeping close tabs on for, for this year. As you started, you know, quite, quite focused on it earlier in the year was just looking at how a lot of smaller central banks. So, um, you know, like countries in Africa, East Europe, et cetera, um, you know, kind of, obscure countries um, by most people's standards um, were starting to increase interest rates. Um, and then that started to spread. And so I always find it quite useful to look at what's happening in those um, like smaller developing countries because they're much more sensitive to the global growth inflation pulse. And um, as it turned out, you know, they were the first ones to move. Then you've had more and more emerging markets um, at this point over 50% of emerging market central banks have actually increased interest rates, um, which is kind of one of those stats that sneaks up on you. Um, and I think Norway meets this week, they might hike. So that'll be like kind of one of the first developed market central banks and New Zealand um, over here, we're going to probably hike next month. So, um, and then, you know, whether the Fed tapers this week um, or flags it, We'll see, but it's probably going to happen in the near term. So that's the, the, we're clearly turning the corner there. But, but back to the issue of very high debt levels, it also raises the specter of fiscal policy. And so I've just talked about central banks and monetary policy, stimulus getting withdrawn, tightening. But fiscal policy might end up tightening at the same time, which is kind of the nightmare scenario for... Um, you know, with valuations very high. Um, so, you know, if we look at the OECD economies and aggregate debt levels as a percentage of GDP have doubled, but their um, revenue, so government revenue as a percentage of GDP has gone sideways. Um, 
implying that basically tax rates, you know, the tax take has um, not gone up to meet that. Now, you can kind of explain that gap due to interest rates, but there is this idea that we need to pay for um, all that fiscal expense that we did during the crisis. And um, certainly I think there's political, social will sort of gathering momentum around that. Um, the G20 earlier this year tried to agree on um, a global minimum corporate tax rates. So I think the number there was 21%. Clearly the UK is um, talking about a 2023 um, tax hike. And the US, um, they're currently figuring out exactly um, what the, the tax hike will be, but it seems like there probably will be one. Um, prediction markets um, were priced at 80% last week. And, um, but I think this is a global theme. So if we look at global equities over the last four decades, um, the, the effect of tax rate was on a falling trend. And so that was basically a tailwind to earnings. That trend is pretty clearly coming to an end. So in the coming years, um, rising corporate tax rates, effective tax rates is going to be a headwind to earnings. So um, yeah, basically, um, and that raises the prospect of um, tightening monetary policy and you know, headwinds from fiscal policy. Mm. That's really interesting. I've read, I read a really interesting argument um, that because the dollar is, you know, obviously important to the Fed, um, if they were allowed for deflation to occur, that obviously supports the dollar in relation to other um, currencies. Um, what do you think of that argument and how important is the dollar to the Fed? Well, it's a key part of um, financial conditions. So I guess it depends what they're trying to do. If you think about what the what a currency does for an economy, um, a, a weaker currency will increase imported inflation. Um, it will improve returns for <laughs> um, investors yeah, in that currency that are brought offshore. Um, Whereas, and it, and it you know, obviously helps exporters as well. Um, whereas, a, so generally, a weaker US dollar will help increase inflation. Um, and so, you know, if, they're try, if, they're, if they see inflation running below target, then they'd probably be keen to go after a weaker dollar. Um, it's also ties quite importantly into global financial conditions. So a weaker dollar is generally good for emerging markets. Um, you know, commodity prices, just due to sort of maths, um, go up because most commodities are priced in US dollars. So if the US dollar goes down, commodities go up. Um, so that tends to have a sort of um, boosting effect for the global economies, certainly emerging markets. So if, if they're trying, if they're, if, I guess from their perspective, if they see inflation as being too high, um, you know, you could argue that the, the dollar is another um, mechanism by which they can um, tighten things a bit. So, um, but even then, you know, ultimately that would come back to the core policy toolkit because, um, you know, kind of the, the easiest way to lift the dollar would be to, um, increase interest rates or, um, you know, reduce, cease, um, taper, um, sell, you know, in terms of the balance sheet. So um, I think 
probably for the Fed, it's more of a secondary aspect. You know, some other central banks, it's more of a core tool. Um, for the Fed, I, I'd say that it's probably more of a, a better Okay. And now moving on to or get, getting more specific within the bond market, you mentioned uh, tapering um, and tightening already a few times, but when do you think that will occur? And to what extent do you think they will, they will taper? I mean, it's kind of a guessing game to try and pick the exact amount. Um, I think that the key thing to focus on is that they are going to taper um, and that it does kind of pile on with the rest of things and at the margin reduces the monetary tailwinds. Um, but I guess I would say there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a decent chance that they'll flag it this week. Uh, I think that we definitely get it by the end of the year. Do you think that there will be a, um, you know, a spillover effect or contagion from the current Evergrande um, situation? I wouldn't call myself an expert on this, but having observed... China fairly closely for the last couple of decades. Um, my base case would be that they will definitely not let it get out of control. I mean, from a from a principal standpoint, they will absolutely step in and ring fence it. And, you know, because they're very much interventionist, this is a completely different financial system, completely different um, governance system to uh, what, what there is in the US. So I think that we can't really say, oh, no, this is going to be a Lehman moment because it's just a, um, the, the, the systems are too different. That said, they have, you know, made the occasional misstep along the way. Um, so there is a risk that they uh, mismanage it. Um, but I think that my base case would be that they will fence it. There could be definitely contagion across the real estate sector there. Um, but they've got a lot of um, tools to manage this uh, and, you know, they can be very forceful in the way that they step in and intervene. Um, in terms of contagion across the rest of the world, I think that the most direct um, contagion would be just sentiment. And I think that we're kind of seeing that in um, markets today. Um, the, the sort of the boogeyman effect, um, you know, people... There's, there's clearly um, people that have already had a bearish view and they'll be hammering on about it. Um, and then just the headline effect, you know, if um, if you see headlines saying, you know, this is China's Lehman moment and, you know, you, you don't necessarily know that much about markets, um, you know, you probably, you probably, your first reaction is to just say, right, risk off, um, taking the risk off, yep. And well, and the, the, the problem is too, just from a timing standpoint, timing matters so much in everything, um, especially markets. But you know, the technical setup is pretty bad. <laughs> the short-term technical setup. So we had that breach of the fifty-day moving average. Um, you know, the pattern had been most of this year. You know, S and P comes down to the fifty-day, bounces, comes back up. Um, so the, the 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 trading action price action last week was very unconvincing and um, then you actually had that breach and then of course today um, it's down quite a bit <laughs> um, which I think reflects that but you've um, it's coming at a bad time too you know just if you look at the worry list um, so you've got the prospect of Fed taper you know the Fed meeting this week the debt ceiling um, you know that tax hike probability rising to 80% last week 
you've still got delta issues in the background then i think still some concerns about growth stagflation etc and then even seasonality um this time of the year markets tend to be a bit more volatile and downward skewed um you do tend to see a bit of a rally into the last couple of months of the year so um maybe this is a um, bit of a shakeout moment and and also just um, going back to that point where people have been lulled into the sense of complacency, um, you know, the Fed's got your back. Um, we haven't had a decent correction or sell-off for quite some time. So I think sentiment could change very quickly. And, um, you know, we're probably we're seeing that in motion right now. So, yeah, we're, we're watching the theory unfold in practice um, right as we speak. And still on the theme of the bond market, how overvalued is the bond market and, and why did it get to these levels? Um, yeah, so on my indicators, it's um, fairly extremely overvalued. Uh, how did we get to these? Well, yeah, clearly the Fed and other central banks have been um, definitely important from a flows perspective and from, and from just a, um, you know, reducing the free float. Um, you know, if we think about equity markets, if you reduce the free float of um, of a particular company, then generally, you know, if there is demand for that company, then you tend to see the stock price go up. And um, you know, so that just withdrawing the available supply, and there is a lot of basically forced buyers of um, treasuries, so would you know, government bonds in general. Um, you know, if you think about most sort of balanced funds or pension funds, et cetera, they have to, they basically have to uh, buy. And, 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 you know, it does make sense to have some bonds, even if it is expensive because it's still diversifier. Um, insurance companies, sovereign funds, um, other central banks. So there is just this sort of natural demand for bonds. And if you reduce the supply, so that's one aspect. Uh, shorter term, there's also been the issue of Delta and that long worry list that we just talked about. So that's kind of, uh, that helped bonds rally. And also just more recently, I guess, you know, if you saw the rally in bonds that, that happened over the last few months, um, that came from a position where sentiment was um, very much consensus bearish. Um, and positioning was clearly um, clearly on one side of the boat. And so that basically needed to be shaken out. So that has been at least partly shaken out now. So I'd say sentiment on bonds is more sort of down the middle now um, from being, you know, completely consensus um, a few months ago. So uh, from my point of view, it looks ripe for... Um, a bit of an up, a bit of a shakeout. Maybe we need to see this sort of risk off episode kind of, um, you know, come to fruition. Um, and then, you know, I, I think that the recovery is still on track. Um, the, the, if you get decent infrastructure spending from the US, uh, growth is largely, um, you know, the growth, the growth pulse is kind of reset. And uh, I think that we, probably see yields head up um, probably into into year end. You get a bit of a seasonal um, tailwind there as well. So, yeah. 
Okay. And, and, and I guess, um, and it leaves investors in a bit of a tricky situation too, because you're kind of sitting there saying bonds are overvalued and equities, or at least US equities are overvalued. Um, so kind of a tricky situation. Can you explain negative yields and how they got there? Um, and also if or why they can become positive again? Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, bond yields basically reflect current and expected settings of monetary policy. So if the central bank puts interest rates into negative, then that'll tend to um, translate into the bond yields uh, and the trajectory of policy will tend to um, be reflected in, in bond um, prices, bond yields. But again, you know, it just sort of comes down to the, um, the whole aspect of supply and demand. Um, you know, from a yield standpoint, obviously, may, getting, getting a negative yield doesn't make much sense. But then um, if you have to buy bonds or, you know, if you, want, if you think a certain small negative is better than an uncertain, you know, potentially large negative, then, you know, then it can kind of make sense, I guess. Um, but in terms of whether they can go positive again, um, yeah, definitely easily. Um, we've already seen uh, that kind of happening. We've seen them several countries go into the negatives and then come back out. Um, and so, you know, I think sort of one, I guess, follow-up question from that is, you know, how high can they go? Or, you know, or, or maybe can we ever see bond yields go back to what we've seen in previous decades like you know are we stuck at zero forever um, and i think the answer to that kind of depends on quite a few things but one thing that i'm thinking about more in regards to commodities but it definitely has an impact on this would be the um the green climate investment sort of revolution uh, there's a lot of governments out there that are, but you know they're, they're saying all these quite interesting goals. Like the US Biden was saying, um, you know they want to be completely zero carbon by 2035 in their um, electricity production, and they want to be um, you know zero carbon by 2050. Um, so there's a few things to say about that. Well, first of all, um, well first of all the cynical take. So just to you know, play the other side of it, it would be that they're just, um, it's all fluffy talk and, you know, it's just governments like to um, say those things to appease the populace. But if they're really serious about it, 2050 is actually not that far away. You know, that's um, only 30 years and they're talking about a complete transformation of the energy system and ultimately that means the economy as well. And, you know, to... <laughs> and and the issue, the other issue there is that you know these some of these projects can take quite a while to actually build, let alone get approved um, and planned. And you know, obviously, there needs to be some tech um, breakthroughs as well. So, you know, if they're really serious about these, then they're going to need to get cracking. And you know, if if these if they actually follow through with these ambitions, then we're going to see. Um, globally, an investment boom that you know 
could be on a scale that we haven't seen before. Or, you know, it could be effectively, you know, an equivalent of, say, China going from, you know, the, the industrialization process that they took, undertook, you know, in the, in the last decade. So, you know, if you wanted to try and um, paint a narrative around it or, you know, come up with a narrative as to why commodities could have a, another secular pool market, that would be a key driver in my view. Because, um, you know, the, the, the path to carbon zero is going to be paved with an enormous commodities boom. Um, and which I guess in a way is kind of self-reinforcing because if you, if you push oil prices up by um, curtailing investment into oil, then that increases the attractiveness of alternatives. So, um, yeah, and it kind of all ties in with each other. So I think um, that's you know, definitely one of the key themes that I would be looking for. And, and, and if they did get cracking on that, then obviously there's a lot of, you know, it's a vast capital expenditure and that would require heavy issuance. You know, our, our government over here has been talking about the same kind of goals and I'm, I'm just like, what you should do is use your good credit rating, use these very low levels of interest rates, issue heaps of debt and just build. That's so interesting. Moving on to the stock market, though, do you believe in mean reversion or is the Fed backstop and mantra, don't find the Fed too powerful? Um, yes. <laughs> so kind of yes to both answers. I mean, both questions there. So it comes down to time frame and time frame in a couple of ways, because first of all, when we're talking mean reversion, we're probably talking about valuation mean reversion. And if we look at absolute valuations at the moment, they are, you know, extremely elevated versus history, definitely well, well above average. Uh, I think that it would be perhaps too optimistic, too risky to believe that valuations would be staying at these levels forever. I think, yeah, but I guess too, you know, you, you can actually get valuations falling if, um, if earnings rise fast enough. <laughs> but most of the time it's because, uh, you know, prices do a bit of the heavy lifting to bring um because if you think about the PE ratio there's two numbers in that um but in terms of don't fight the feared valuations well you know if you look at absolute valuations yes they're extremely expensive if you look at the equity risk premium it's actually still reasonable uh so factoring in the current bond yields factoring the current monetary policy settings you know there is that kind of uh mixed message there and so if that equity risk premium squeezes you know rates rise bond yields um rise the earnings side of things, earnings yield squeezes, then uh, that, that from a timing standpoint, that'll, that'll be one of the key signals to tell you, okay, it's unequivocally expensive now, time to reduce allocations. Um, and then the other, the other point of that is just, um, you know, yes, don't fight the Fed. Um, you know, if monetary conditions are supportive, then all else equal risk assets are going to tend to do well. Um, but as we get through the cycle, monetary policy will be withdrawn, that stimulus will be withdrawn, and ultimately we'll move into tightening mode. And at that point, also don't fight the Fed, because if the Fed is tightening and valuations are high, um, you know, that's when you definitely don't want to fight the Fed and, and stay long, overstay your welcome. You know? Yeah. Now, Colin, which geographies are you underweight and overweight on? Um, so basically, you know, 
dictated by relative value. So US is the most expensive, so underweight there. Basically, rest of the world, because it's pretty interesting stats, really. So if you look at the PE10 ratio, so price to trailing average 10-year earnings, and the reason we look at average earnings is um, over 10 years is to try and smooth out the volatility, which over the last year, extreme volatility. So hence why we use that. Over almost 100%, so basically 98% of countries are cheaper than the US. About 95% of countries are at least 20% cheaper than the US. So it's um, pretty interesting statistics there. So whether you look at it, the breadth for valuations like that, or just the um, you know, US versus global ex-US valuations is a clear valuation gap. That valuation gap, um, you know, the, the the biggest pushback to that is, yeah, but what about composition? And composition is actually quite important because if you look at the rest of the world, there's a much greater weight to what I call old cyclicals. So energy, financials, industrials, materials. So rest of the world is about 50%. Old, old cyclicals, um, whereas if you look at the US, it's basically 50% tech and tech-related, and they're waiting to, the US are waiting to old cyclicals is about, you know, closer to 25%. So um, in this last year, tech companies basically received a one-off um, bonanza from <laughs> the pandemic because uh, it accelerated all these trends that were already in progress. Clearly, it's going to be hard to, replicate that kind of um, acceleration. So if you get the real economy, you know, is clearly sort of slowly becoming back on track, then that helps rest of the world. So I think that's important because that's kind of a cyclical thematic story that um, helps kind of round out that valuation story because a lot of times where there's a relative value case, but, you know, maybe it, there's that maybe that relative value case exists for like five years. You know, it takes a long time for the, the for that actually to come to fruition. Um, so I think, yeah, and, and actually back to my point before. So yes, sectoral composition matters a lot. Um, but an important point is that if you adjust valuations for sectors, so basically run a sector neutral valuation. The, the discounts is still there. So it's not just because of sectors that, um, that there is that valuation difference because obviously the tech sector is valued quite highly versus the rest of the market. Because even within the US, um, I would say that uh, you know, value versus growth looks um, pretty interesting and, and it's kind of the same kind of themes that are reflected there. So, um, you know, I mean, Probably where I would get a little bit nuanced would be within emerging markets or like EMX Asia. So we're talking Latin America, um, Middle East, Africa, East Europe versus Asia, um, mostly on valuation and positioning. Um, and within that, particularly LATAM looks quite interesting. Okay, awesome. And you've mentioned um, sex a few times. Which sexes are you, are you overweight and underweight on? One kind of group of sectors that I'm quite interested in, particularly as the cycle progresses and, um, you know, as those valuation signals change will be the defensive sectors. So utilities, consumer staples, healthcare. 
in terms of relative value, that that sector or that group of sectors, that basket of sectors is very cheap. Like pretty much you had to go back to the dot-com bubble to see the, the, the same kind of um, situation. Weighting as a percentage of overall market cap is at close to record lows. Investor positioning is very low. Um, so it's, it's, it's one of those classic contrarian setups, but again, timing is key because um, if the bull market keeps going, they, in relative terms, they're going to get left behind. But um, you know, I think that's going to be a very interesting sector as we do get later in the cycle. Awesome. And uh, Callum, the last uh, question I have for you is, how much life do you think is left in the party and, and when or how will it stop? So how it will stop, I think, um, is going back to sort of principles of market analysis and, you know, the sort of idealised checklist would be valuations are extremely expensive, both absolute and relative. Um, monetary policy actually turns to tightening, you know, it moved, but it goes from less, less stimulus to tightening, um, fiscal policy tightening, um, the econ- economy gets overheated and then starts rolling over, earnings um, sort of get too good and start rolling over. Um, investor positioning, so, you know, people are excessively overweight, excessively optimistic, um, and then just rounding that out with technicals would be, you know, um, sort of the, the triggers would be, you know, breach of a key trend line, um, you know, it goes, you know, it triggers, you know, a bunch of sort of indicators to say that it's moving from bull to bear. So um, it, that's what I would be looking at. And, um, you know, I can take quite a few boxes there, but um, not all of them, not the key boxes. So I think, um, you know, there's going to be a, come a time to get moved structurally defensive, but we're not quite there yet, I don't think. Awesome. Okay. Well, that's a perfect note to end off on, Callum. Thank you very much. Thank you.